My name is Brock, and this is the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. On today's episode, I got to talk to Dan from Brazil. So during the episode, we talked about the RPG scene in Brazil, running games for kids, emulating the horror genre, taking player control, and galactic time spans. As always, we have links to all of the books in the show notes. If you're interested in listening to an audiobook version, all of the books linked have an audible version. And if you sign up for their free trial, you are able to get a free book, which you get to keep, I believe, even if you cancel the trial. So if you're into audiobooks, that might be a way to pick up a free book. Remember to like, follow, and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening on. Be sure to comment your favorite part of the episode. If you're interested in chatting further or being on the show, check out our Discord server. Link is in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and let's get started. Today I have Dan from Brazil with me. Welcome, Dan. And can you tell us a little bit how you got started with tabletop role-playing games? Hey, Brock. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm a OG, second generation. I started in 1993 at the age of nine with that red introdu- introductory box of Hero Quest, Dungeon Quest, it was called, uh, for Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, that's the second edition of D&D. You know the box, it has like these introductory adventure and pre-made characters and the summary of the rules and what. And it was fun, it was very nice. And a few months later, the same friend who owned that box got the translated books for the Trinity for the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons books. And so he started telling his own story. Advanced to high school, when the world gets a lot bigger for most of us. And it was easy to find people with similar tastes. And since then, it's been a hell of a ride. So 28 years and counting. That's about as long as I've been alive, so that's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. Um, and do you end up uh, DMing most of the time, or do you kind of swap between being a DM and a player? Until um, Up until maybe 12, I, I, I would like to say 15 years ago, I was mostly playing. But ever since then, it's mostly GMing with the occasional playing. But yeah, for the most, for the last decade or so, it was mostly GMing. And do you typically stick with Dungeons and Dragons then, or have you branched out into other games? Oh no, Dungeons and Dragons, I stopped playing when I was like 19. (laughs) I... I I try to branch out a lot, but my group is very, very passionate about a specific system called Empire the Masquerade, which was released back in the 90s. And recently they tried to do a revival with a fifth edition. It wasn't accepted so well, even by us. So we mostly play older rule sets and settings. 
Uh, it's basically what I what I GM nowadays, Vampire the Masquerade. We also have tried in the past a few campaigns of Shadowrun, 4th edition, and Legends of the Five Rings, a game that was published by Alderac, and uh, it was mostly to promote their card game. But it's a fun game, and yeah, it's mostly that. But D&D is still... It still holds a very special place in my heart. I like the fantasy, I like the setting, I like somewhat, I like the rules. And I love what, for, for instance, Critical Role has been doing with it. But yeah, I don't play D&D as a rule. What is it about Vampire the Masquerade that your group really seems to latch on to? Oh, I came from a heavy metal background, you know, bullied kids, stuff like that. So horror has always been a very close to heart genre for me. And it was easy to find people in high school and in college that shared that uh, uh, that preference. And most of the people that I started playing with when I was in high school. I still am friends with today. I still play with today and they still like the game a lot. And they are like industrial people, heavy metal people, golf people, and it's their game of choice. And sadly, I don't have as many friends who like other genres. So it's sort of what I'm stuck with. But it's no worries. I mean, it's a fun game. I, I like the setting. I like genre, so I play it. It's it's no no problems. Are there specific games that you haven't run, but you would maybe like to run in the future? Oh yes, definitely. Uh, that's the thing about RPG in Brazil. I mean, uh, it's a very expensive hobby in Brazil. So books cost upwards of like 10, 20% of minimum wage. So it's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very difficult hobby to get into if you don't know anyone who has been playing for a while, you know? Sure. And most, most, most of, the, of the people that play are either old-timers like me or people that have friends who are old-timers and introduce them to the game because if you want to buy a book you have to buy the translated book which is expensive as hell <laughs> or you have to import a book which gets even more expensive or right. you have to resort to green market and pirating which is a shame but something that sometimes has to be done and I have been around RPGs for a long time, and I, I, I'm blessed with, with knowing the English language as well. Most, most of my friends don't speak English as well as I do, so for them, reading rules in English and finding new books is difficult. Sure. It's more difficult for them than for me. So I have been around, and I've have, I have researched other books and I have found other books that I would love to try. I think the perfect the perfect setting has already been written. It's Numenera, 
I don't know if you know of it. Um, I've I've skimmed it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I am absolutely in love with that setting. I think it's it's amazing. It's perfect. It's everything that I would like to run or play or whatever. But sadly, <laughs> I can't find people in here, friends of mine, that I can get into it. D and D, sure, yeah, I would love to play some D and D, some true, uh, well prepared D and D. But yeah, that's something that, for the moment, I can't go after. Um, does your group mostly meet in person to play, or do you do any sort of play online? It's a tricky thing. Yeah, we prefer to play in person. We have always played in person. With the pandemic, we did move the game to a, a, a virtual environment. But due to adult life and schedule issues and internet issues, I have we sort of have been on a hiatus for a while. And we are planning to get back to it, especially if we can manage uh, a physical seat, a physical meeting. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it, it's for the moment it's a little bit more virtual than in presence. But if we are presented with the choice, we prefer to go with, with a, a physical meeting. Sure. Yeah, and I think that's the case with a lot of people. Um... It's just usually either distance or um, the pandemic that kind of stops that and, and pushes it to virtual. Yeah. So, Yeah, one of my greatest friends and that I have met, that I, ha that I met when I was in college, he has moved abroad. And whenever we play, it has to be virtual, obviously. And it's been great fun so far, even virtually. It's nice when you have access to those virtual tools so you can bridge those gaps. Um, I, I would yeah, prefer to yeah. play. Um, Technology is a, is a wonderful thing. I mean, <laughs> when, I was, when I was starting playing over the phone was a thing that was unthought of, you know. It was crazy to think. Right. And nowadays, nowadays it's mostly, what, you want to meet? Crazy! I have stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, since you did switch to virtual at least for a short time, what tools have you been using online? Oh, none. I mean, we we meet over Skype or Discord or whatever, and that's it. We share screens and show stuff on each other's screen. We don't use Row D and D or roll 20 we don't use any of that stuff mostly because we don't like it we prefer to play with our imagination we don't play a game vampire is not a very tactical game so it doesn't need maps it doesn't need minis it's a lot more interpretation based it's a lot more social it doesn't have a lot of combat but yeah it's it's mostly a conversation Sure, and that makes sense. And I haven't played 
the vampire game. So I guess I'm I'm more familiar with the kind of tactical nature of D and D and some of the other ones that I've played. So that makes sense that you'd be able to keep more of it just theater of the mind versus needing actual maps or anything. Yeah, we still use. I mean, I I, I as a game master, I like to use a lot of uh, visual imagery whenever possible. You know, so I go a lot on Pinterest and ArtStation and other stuff like that to find inspiration. And occasionally I show those that inspiration to my players as a means of trying to make help them visualize what I have in mind. But uh, using maps and stuff like that, it's mostly whenever I use a physical location that exists in the real world, for instance, if the characters have to travel to New York City. Then I'll, op uh, I'll open Google Maps and have a map of the city. I don't need a map of the location they are in. If there is combat, I don't usually pull up a map with minis and stuff like that. There are games that I play, Legends of the Five Rings, with my friend that went abroad. He uses a lot of maps. He uses Row 20, and it's good, and it's fun. But for Vampire, we most don't feel the need to it. Sure. It just maybe be overkill for that game. Yeah. Um, what do you end up doing for prep for your sessions then? Prep for my sessions? Well, I don't prep for my sessions as much as I prep for the whole game, for the campaign, for the series of one-shots that I have planned. Uh, prep for my sessions, I realized a long time ago that if I plan the whole session, my game, my players are going to derail it as fast as humanly possible. <laughs> so nowadays, I just make like bullet points of possible encounters, of possible conversations, of NPCs they might meet. And the prep goes beyond that, in the meaning that if I'm going to introduce an NPC that is important, to the game, I you can be damn sure that I'm gonna make the whole backstory and flowchart of relationships of that NPC inside my build, inside my world, and stuff like that. You know. Yep. I have the story. I have the story really set out. You know, I I, I write the story and I I write the objectives of the quote unquote bad guys and uh, how they fit into the world, how they relate to the other key players, NPC-wise, in the game. But for the session in itself, it's mostly bullet points, encounters that I find interesting, uh, events that I find interesting that might or might not be uh, out of control of the characters, of the player characters. And I just improvise the rest because I found that, for me, that's what really works. Yeah, that makes sense. And I agree with the uh, statement that your players will attempt to derail the can or the whatever you have had planned as, as quickly as possible. That It seems to be a pretty common a theme. <laughs> yeah. I remember a session of Shadowrun. That Shadowrun is a very mission-based game. Right? Characters, they... They get a contract, they go and do something, and they get paid for it. And 
on the contract, it was very clear from the get-go that it was like a suicide mission or so. And they, they went in guns blazing without a real backup plan or escape plan or whatever. And they managed, man. They managed through a sheer luck of the dice and some pretty creative and imaginative uh, decisions to completely derail my game. And I was very frustrated by that. But I was very <laughs> impressed by my players as well. So maybe stepping back, you so you said you don't plan a lot for... Uh, an individual session, but you do plan more of the major um, objectives of the main bad guy. How does your, what else do you do for your main like campaign prep? And do you do that all kind of at the beginning or like before you start a campaign? Yeah, I would say that around 80%, 75, 80% of the campaign is written before we even set up, sit down for session zero. I'm right now writing one for my players. Uh, our last campaign sort of ended in a, a cliffhanger, and I want to continue that cliffhanger. So I'm sort of writing as of now. And before the game begins, I have already 80% of it written. And I say 80% because I'm sure that they are going to be able to change it. And that's the fun of the game, right? Um, but I go with most of it planned. Like, what's the objective? How they plan on getting there, the bad guys, I mean. How my, my, my bad guys plan on getting there? Who are the key figures, NPCs, that they can use to get to that objective? Flowcharts, I do a lot of flowcharts, and like fluxograms or granograms. I don't know how the word is, is in English, but with connection between the NPCs and who is important to who, who is enemy to who, and stuff like that. And when we go to the games, when we go to the live plays, I just try to stick to it as best as I can. My players are going to derail it. I know of the, I know of that beforehand, but because I have the flowcharts and who is important and who is in charge of certain sections of the city and stuff like that, I have uh, most of my game before we get to that cut out on how to respond to that uh, threat that the players create. Right. So the the prep that you're doing is really kind of setting up the world and and the connections in the world, and then that gives you the uh, it probably makes it easier for you to improvise when the players go and try and mess with that with those connections essentially yes yes it's mostly because if i don't if i go in with my pants around my ankles and nothing nothing written as related to that particular section of the game if the players go and derail it and they go off the off the beaten path and do a thing that i'm not prepared for and i have to improvise from zero Sometimes I, I am forced to do that, but it doesn't feel as satisfying because I don't feel like I have a plan for that beforehand. And sometimes it's fun. Sometimes they force me to go and improvise in a way that I'm not prepared, and it creates a unique opportunity that ends up being more fun than the one I have 
I have prepared. And when it, when it happens, I usually go and change everything in my campaign to, to situate that improvisation that I had to do. But yeah, it's it, in, the, in the end of the day, I mean, we all play to have fun. And if the players, if I feel like my players are not having that fun with my improvisations, I usually go and slack off a little. You know, I tend to give them a little bit more breathing room. Sure. But the the way I go about it is, they are gonna they are going to do everything in their power to ruin the plans that I have for the bad guys. So I'm gonna do everything in my power to make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah, so it's kind of a give and take between the bad guys and the players then. Yeah, because I like I like and my players like the old adage of the very cinematic and very climatic ending, you know, of a campaign. They like the games that the last session they have to sacrifice themselves and the bad guy the bad guy is dead um, in a very heroic manner they like that and i like that so i try to set it up as best as i can so you're really trying to produce that cinematic feeling in your campaigns yes yes how how long or how many sessions does it typically take to get through like a like a campaign for you before you would start a new one? The bare minimum I would say is about six to eight encounters, uh, not encounters in the game, but encounters sessions. Sorry, session six to eight sessions, but. As long as we are having fun with the characters and with the world, I mean, I've had campaigns that lasted for three years. So, as long as we're having fun, I'm happy to keep keep on improvising, keep on writing, keep on adding stuff. But I don't feel as as satisfied if we close the game with like four sessions, you know? Sure. Um, you're really trying to go for that cinematic, so you probably have kind of an arc of kind of a start to then hopefully kind of a conclusion, and then I assume if you if you hit something that feels satisfying as a stopping point, then you say, okay, here's where we're going to cut it, and then we'll roll up a new campaign. Yeah, I tried not to do it immediately. Like, I tried to do my best to judge how how well we are going to get to that. I mean, if we are in a particular session and it feels like in the next session or in two sessions from now, it's a, it's a, it's going to be a good stopping point. I try to steer the campaign towards that. Mm -hmm. And it's not like in this session have things happen that it looks like a good ending. I try not to do that. I try to prepare myself in order to go to a session where I know that that session is going to be the last. Right, and that probably helps you really ratchet up the tension and everything too to just make it have a really high ending. 
Yes, because I go in more prepared for it. So I I, I can evoke feelings in my players that are more permanent, you know, uh, uh, of uh, than if I simply wing it from the get-go. RPGs are stories, and the best stories are the stories that stick to us, you know? If by the end of the campaign, the characters, the players, sorry, they remember their characters, they remember scenes from that campaign, they remember the characters' names, they remember NPC names, then their campaign was a fun campaign. If they don't, it's not, it was not a fun campaign. <laughs> kind of a good way to judge um, the success of a campaign, I suppose. Yeah. Much like books and, and movies. If you read a book, a book, let's say, 10 years, 10 years ago, and if you still remember that book, that was a good book that impacted. So that's what I try to do with this book. That is a really neat way to look at it because there are, you know, I definitely have favorite books and movies and TV shows that I can can remember and then there are a bunch of other ones that i just you know i know that i read them but i don't really remember what happened so they must not have been that important to me <laughs> yes it's a subconscious thing right because it impacts you on such a personal level that you stick to it with the rest of your mind for the rest of your life that's pretty much the same with rpgs i've been playing for 28 years and i don't remember much most, most of my games from high school but since I found this group of players that plays almost exclusively Vampire, and I've met them like 20 years ago, there are so many stories that I remember being told or telling them. And they too remember campaigns and sessions from the past. And that's a, that's a satisfying feeling for a GM when your players they talk about the game outside of the game. Right. You did a good job. Yep. Yeah, if if you can play a game or run a game and then that's all your players are thinking about for a while, that's that definitely means you did a good job. Yeah. When you wrap up a campaign and then you roll into the next campaign, do you typically make new characters or you know does it is there some sort of a continuity there or like same setting or same world but different player or different characters i try to it 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 depends it sort of depends on on the campaign itself but yeah i mean if the characters if the characters they they stand out for some reason, if the player characters stand out for some reason, I, I try to integrate them into my campaign. I love to one thing that I love to do is get player characters cameos in other in other in, in future campaigns. You know, like if I'm if I'm if I'm running a game and there is a player character that I particularly like, when that campaign ends and I go for another one, I keep that player character in the game, but I, I turn it into an NPC. Most of the other 
things are new, but there are some key players, there are some key elements, some key characters, both player characters and NPC characters that I still keep in my work because they were impactful. And because I would love to see the reaction of my players at seeing them again in a different setting with different player characters to interact with. Right. It's just like if you're reading a book or watching a movie and then, you know, you get familiar with some characters and then, you know, there's a sequel or something. And then, you know, that one character comes back for just a couple of minutes and you're like, oh, yes, I know who that is. Yes, precisely. My favorite book, my favorite trilogy is a trilogy that repeats one character, one character throughout the whole, all three books. There is only one common character in all three books. And it's a character that whenever I, whenever she appears on the, on, on, on the book, I know that that book is going to be, that scene, that, that book is going to be fun. Because that character is a really well fleshed out character and it's the things that she did were really impactful in their stories. What book is that? So it's pretty much like that. Or trilogy? It's the it's the sprawl trilogy by William Gibson, Neuromancer, Count Zero and Mona Lisa over. It's a cyberpunk story. Cool. I will have to look those up. I've not heard of them, so Oh, I strongly, strongly recommend. I know that William Gibson's writing style is not for everybody, but if you do manage to enjoy the first, I would say, 30% of the first book, then you're going to enjoy the whole trilogy. It's really fun, at least for me. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to uh, look that up. I think every time I have these interviews, I get like six more you know, like book recommendations, either <laughs> RPG books or just actual books that I have to go. So yeah. my, my backlog is getting a little bit big at this point. So, um. <laughs> if you're going to, if you're going to read just one book from that trilogy, I suggest read just the first one, which is Neuromancer, which is a book that is very good. Not so, not only very good, but it's sort of the book that is, but to be the origin of the cyberpunk genre. Oh, okay. And it's a very special book to me, and it's it's a very good book. Yeah, I'll have to to. I'll, what I'll probably do is I'll try and find an audiobook version of it and listen to it when I'm doing, you know, random stuff around the house. Uh, that's usually how I intake books nowadays. <laughs> it, it, it's a good tactic. Um, how frequently does your group meet? Yeah, that's a that's a tricky. That's a tricky <laughs> I mean, most of the most of the group are in their mid to late thirties. Uh, there is one. There, there there is a couple that have children. Everybody works, so it's really complicated to find the schedule for it. Uh, but we try to do it as often as possible, and that's the best answer I can give you. I can give you because there is absolutely no pattern to our meetings. We do not meet like once a week. We do not not meet not even once a month. But we try to do it as often as possible. 
and and whenever we meet i do a little critical role style last we saw their characters and i try to remember remind our characters our players what transpired in the game so far because our meetings are so erratic and so spurred out nowadays at least that uh that's something i i need to do i would love if i would i i could play every week or every other week but it's something that it's impossible for me at, the, at this stage of my life sadly i i've had campaigns that lasted for like i remember clearly a campaign of legends of, of the five rings that we met twice a month for 18 months and it was blessed it was amazing we did so much in that campaign with that amount of sessions but unfortunately right now it's not something that i can do yeah and i'm kind of at the same point too the um one of the main players that i have has kids um i have a daughter um and everybody works full time and yeah especially when you have kids it's like you're you're time window for when you can actually play kind of is like usually in the evening sometime and and it gets hard to schedule things so yeah even twice a week is is hard to even commit to yeah we are glad that the kids are now reaching adolescent teenage years because now they're gonna be less frequent in in, in the parents lives and we are gonna have more 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 time to play it's a very awful thing to say i would say but <laughs> it, it, it's good hey before too long they'll probably want to join right <laughs> yeah hopefully i've i have i i've i've gm before to children of players of friends and it's been fun it, it, it it's it's nice when you can add new blood to the to the to the hobby but yeah it's it's a thing that nowadays it's the most assured way of getting people into the hobby um would you say there were any challenges that you had when you ran games for you know younger kids there are a few yeah first is concentration Versus getting them to concentrate on the game and not uh, not uh, wander out or go do other things when they are not in turn, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, are a little bit of challenge in getting them to understand the rules or the uh, the, the setting. It's something that can be easily adapted. You can simply tell them to roll the dice and not not explain why, not explain what they're doing. If they try to do something, just say, okay, roll the dice and I'll check if you can make if you can make it or not. But yeah, I don't have that much experience GMing to kids and teens. I have some experience, but not a lot. So I would say that my most 
difficult as the most difficult aspect of of it that I ran into was getting them to concentrate and to understand the world. The world selling, not the rules, but the, the world, the setting. Um, and when you ran that for them, did you do vampire still? I'm sorry, I didn't. I didn't catch um, that. When you ran the, the game for them, did you still use the vampire system? For one of them, yes, I remember. Clearly, one of them was 16 at the time, I think. 16 or 17. So it was, he was like, quote-unquote, mature enough to, to, to play it. Because in the end of the day, Vampire is a really horror, personal horror thing. So it's not for everybody. In specific, definitely not for all ages. But there were games that I jammed, like D&D and lighter games. Sure. Uh, we have, uh, we have uh, in Brazil, we have, uh, uh, we had, I'm sorry, had until mid-2000s, early 2000s, we had a, a, a very influential magazine for RPGs. It was called uh, Dragon Magazine, I think. It, uh, there was a magazine of similar, a similar magazine in the U.S. And they actually published a book an RPG book that was based on anime. And that's fantastic. It was a fantastic uh, book and rule set. And it was a very simple rule set, 3D6 and stuff like that, and, and setting to introduce kids and teens to the game. I still own it. And it's a very good book. It's called 3DNT. And it's very fun. 3DNT? Yes, I think I think they translated it to English. I'm not sure now, but I think they did. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, because that, that does seem like kind of a perfect um, genre to emulate to try and get, you know, a, young, a younger crowd just into the space. Yeah. And if you like anime like I do, if you like the Japanese culture and manga and stuff like that, it's really fun because it's like one world with every single anime and manga character and influence into it. You can play a game with Naruto and run into Goku from Dragon Ball. <laughs> it's really fun. It's really interesting. It's really nice. That's cool. Yeah, I'll have to look at that. That does sound fun. Um, my daughter's only two, so it, it's going to be a little bit for me before I can get her into any of that. But Yeah. Well, you know what they say. When they start talking and walking, they, 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 they are ready for RPGs, man. <laughs> well, she started doing that a while ago, so I better, get, I better uh, buckle down. <laughs> yeah. Let's delve a bit into the personal horror aspect of it. Sure. Empire. Yeah, that's perfect. For a minute. Because I, I, I feel like it, we, we have no questions. Nobody nobody that plays this game, no vampire, nobody, nobody that plays RPGs has any questions that D&D is the most popular game in, in history and right now. But I only remember Ravenloft as a setting that really explored horror. And I think horror is a really tricky thing 
to get in, a, in an RPG game. You know? Yeah. Because horror is a really subjective thing, right? Because one, I think that one player might find fearful or disgusting any of the feelings that are associated with horror. One thing, one player might find that absolutely awful and gruesome, hideous, and another player might find that fun and laughable, not at all interesting. So if you want to run an horror campaign, which is something that is easier said than done, uh, you really have to know your players, like intimately. You need to, they, are, they, they, they need to be your friends in real life before they're your players. Because you need to know what makes them tick. Right? Mm-hmm. And I think the easiest way of doing that, and that's a tip for everybody, anybody listening, I think the easiest way to make that, to get that, is to make your players feel threatened. If you can evoke the feeling of fear, of threatened in your players, then you're starting to get into the other territory. And the best way to do that, and it's a, a, a weapon that in the in the game masters arsenal that not all game masters are comfortable using, is to remove control of your players. And not only control of the character. That's a powerful weapon in itself. But if you can manage to get the players to lose control of the situation, they're going to get distrustful. And if they get distrustful, it's real easy to make them feel threatened. Yeah, and I, I think you make a good point there about um, the control aspect and not wanting to take that away from the players because a lot of conversations end up being about uh, player agency and making sure that they they are in control, essentially. Um, and I Yeah, would... and obviously you're not going to take control all of them all the time, right? But if you can manage to take control of them in a moment that they were not expecting to lose control or they did not want to lose control, that can be a powerful narrative too. But even just the thought of, I don't know when this is going to happen again, you know. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. If they feel distrustful, they're going to start distrusting your NPCs. They're going to start distrusting other PCs. And soon enough, the paranoia will be so strong that they're going to be afraid of their own shadows. They're going to be afraid of every single encounter that you propose. So how do you take control of the player then, even for just a brief moment? Can you give an example of that? Yeah, sure. It, let's, let's give a D&D example of that. Imprison them. The old Skyrim and uh, uh, Bethesda way of starting games. Get them in jail. 
get them out without their weapons, without their friends, get them alone in a way that they have the only weapon that they have is their wit. You know, put them in a situation that uh, the only way that they're going to get out of that situation is by thinking and being social and not by using numbers or abilities or weapons. If you can get the players to, to think before they act, it's already halfway towards relinquishing their control. So really getting them in a situation where anything that they have written down, like specifically on their character sheet, like you said, as an ability or a, a number or something, isn't just going to allow them to brute force their way out of it. Yes. Yes. And as I said, if you do that all the time, it's not going to be fun for anyone. But if you do it as a narrative tool, if you use it as a weapon in specific points of your game, then the players know that even when they do have control, they might lose it. Right. It's that uncertainty that that really kind of unhinges yes. them. Yes. Yeah, so they're going to be more careful. And I feel like that grounds the game a little bit. It gets the, the game a little bit more centered and based on reality. Because the players are not going to do something out of impulse. And uh, they're not going to do something that they wouldn't do if they were in their situation, you know? Yeah. When it's, it's real easy for a player to go and do something that they don't do, that they wouldn't usually do. If they were like, let's say, for instance, a level 20 paladin goes against an ancient dragon. It's real easy for them to go in guns blazing because they know they can take it. Right? Yeah. But if you manage to, until that point, until they got to level 20 and met their first ancient dragon, red dragon, is that really a red dragon? Could be an avatar for a god or something. At any moment, their powers could be completely stripped from them. But meaningless. Do we really need to go in guns blazing against dragon? Isn't it better to just analyze it and form a, a more cohesive cohesive plan? Right. You and would you would think what, so. <laughs> yeah, because that's what uh, characters in books and characters in TVs and TV shows and movies would do, right? They wouldn't go guns blazing in it, even if they knew that they could. Because we know for a fact that in TV and movies and in books especially, if a character knows that they can do something and they do it without preparation, they're screwed. They're, it's over for them. Mm-hmm. I think one one great one great example of that is the entirety of the of the Game of Thrones saga, 
it's filled with character stupidity. You know? Like, they wouldn't do that thing. They wouldn't do that thing that they are doing uh, in real life. They wouldn't... I love that, 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 that book series. I didn't like the, the show, but I love the book series. And it's filled with stupid characters. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's, that's a great example, I think, of, of characters that they are so over, overconfident in their abilities that they don't form any plan at all. The best characters in Game of Thrones are the bad guys because they plan everything. Everything. Cersei has the whole thing written from the start. I don't know if you if you follow the books or the show, but she has the whole thing planned from the start. And if things happen that disturb her, disturb her plans, she adapts them without being brash. Right, without rushing that, into things. Yes, and that's the core of all horror games. You cannot run into things. You cannot brush and brute force your your character out of a situation. Because if you do, it's mostly assured that it's going to end bad for you. Um, I think I have an example of the lack or kind of loss of control in a brief moment too. I don't remember where I saw this or I think it might have been a YouTube video or somebody that I had listened to that they talked about an encounter with like an ice dragon of some kind and they said kind of like what you said you know the players going just up against it could just completely kill it and they would know that you know just based on how powerful they were um, but having the dragon use a lot of the environment to its advantage so like come up from underneath like uh icy lake that they're walking across and like grab a player and drag them under so that player is now kind of gone and the other players can't really help in that moment either because they can't see either player or the dragon you know and just doing little things like that where yeah a head-to-head fight players are going to win but not allowing that to necessarily happen Yes, precisely. I remember, I remember one. Uh, you, that ice dragon thing reminds me of Critical Role, and I don't know if you if you watched it. But the first campaign of Critical Role has a perfect horror example. There is the whole Rakshasa debacle, and I'm not gonna go into it uh, in the in the interview. I might send you a, a, a link uh, later for a YouTube video that explains it. But Matthew Mercer is such a good DGM that he used uh, 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 an NPC in a very underpowered situation to evoke a very unique horror uh, sentiment and situation in a, in, in a session. Basically, what happened was one of the characters went against uh, Rakshasa and, and destroyed the physical manifestation of the Rakshasa in the physical world. 
And the Matthew Mercer waited like months to make that Rakshasa reappear. And he made them reappear in a, such a, a, a unique and way and uh, in such a, a, a situation that is so was so impactful. Uh, it was really good. Uh, uh, it's something that it's a really great example of, of payback in a very horror demonic way of doing. Yeah, I'll have to have you send me the link because then I can include it in the show notes. Um, but I also haven't seen, I haven't, I've watched a little bit of Critical Role, but I, I never usually find time to watch it consistently. Yeah, I know, right? I'm like episode five of the second campaign. I mean, 200 episodes, four hours each, it's difficult. Yeah, yeah. I feel you. But it, if you if you manage, it's a really good game. It's a really good set of... Uh, it's a really com- unique combination of people that make it really satisfying to watch. Yeah, I need to sit down. Well, I'm not going to sit down and watch 200 episodes probably, but <laughs> I need to start listening to them <laughs> at the very least. For sure, yeah. One final question then. If you could have a book written, uh, so an RPG book, any kind of book, uh, you could put anything in it, uh, but something that you would use, what what would you put in that book? Or what book, what book do you want to have written, basically? Yeah, that's a tricky question because... I think I mentioned earlier Numenera and how in love with I am with the setting. I think that's like a very unique setting and I don't think I think anything fits in it. But with that said, I would love for a book to have a rule set that makes sense and that uh, fits time jumping, not time traveling, but time jumping in a way that makes sense and a way that that makes the players feel um, not like not like they are out of control, but like have you read Foundation, the Foundation books by Isaac Asimov? No, I haven't. Foundation books by Isaac Asimov. They are they are books that between each chapter, uh, usually a thousand years pass, and it's the same story. I would love to have a system in place where you could tell stories like that, stories, sci-fi stories that span thousands of or millions of years, but where the players could grow attached to their characters without losing them when you were talking about a thousand years between each session or each or between each chapter right you know and it's a thing that i have never seen a book with that in place and it would be really fun to explore how not time traveling but Going forward in time, and that's a thing that every GM has done in the past, but going forward in time in such a scale that it's the, 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 the players have to help the GM write the story from that point. 
what happened those thousand in those a thousand years? Right. How right. Did yeah. Your, how did your character impact the world that I'm building? But have rules for that, you know, tables and whatnot. That would be interesting. Just yeah, especially like you said, since that is such a massive time span, you know, a lot would change in that amount of time. Yeah, precisely. There is a book, I don't remember what it's called, but there is a book that it's about a uh, discovery of a wormhole in our solar system. And aliens invade from that wormhole. And we do the, in the book, we do the most human American thing possible and we take the fight to their homework, right? <laughs> we assemble, we assemble an army and we push them back and we go through the wormhole and we fight. And the fight in their homeworld takes about 10 years. And we, when we get back through the wormhole, back to Earth, a thousand years have passed. How would that be in an RPG system, you know? Sure, it's yeah. Different. Yeah. To think about like cosmic scale galactic time spans. Yeah, that... Cuchulu, Cuchulu time span. It, it, it's fun to think about. Yeah, it definitely has my my brain thinking about just what... Yeah, how would you even turn that into a, into mechanics or something in a book? Yeah, it's really complicated. And I think that's why it hasn't been written so far. But if somebody do manages, I'm all over it. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I, I think if somebody could manage to write something like that, I, I feel like they would probably get... Um, have a decent following just because it's such a... Yeah, like never been done before, like you said. So, it's very unique and interesting. Yeah, it's gonna be, it's gonna be fun. I'm gonna try to write that. Well, awesome. Um, well, Dan, I had a lot of fun talking to you today. <laughs> Hell yeah, bro! Thanks for having me, man. Be fun. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Dungeon Masters Toolkit Podcast. You can find links to all of the products and resources that we talked about on the show in the show notes. And if you'd like to join the community or find out how to be on the show, check out our subreddit or join us in our Discord server.